0: can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon
1: in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind.
0: First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show, I'm joined by Kip Adams to discuss the current state of whitetails and the opportunities we have to create a better future for deer and deer hunting. All right, welcome back to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today we are walking into week two of our Conservation Month series. And as I just mentioned, we're joined by Kip Adams. And this week's show is a really nice, I guess, zoom in from where we started last week. If you remember last week, we talked with Doug Chadwick and got this 30,000 foot overview of kind of the state of wildlife across the world. How do we stand? Where are things going? What cause for concern is there? Where do we see hope? What kind of action can we take to make sure there are wild critters all across this world? And now today, we're going to zoom in to America and one specific species, whitetail deer. I think anyone listening to this podcast would probably rank whitetails right at the top of their list of favorite critters and, uh... I think that's going to make today's episode particularly interesting to a lot of you. Our guest, Kip Adams, as I mentioned, is the chief conservation officer for the National Deer Association. And what we're doing today is using the 2023 deer report, this document that the National Deer Association puts together every year. We're going to use that as a tool to explore the current state of whitetails across the country. Where things stand with the herd, what kind of trends are we seeing in the harvest data, in the information that state game and fish agencies are sharing, what kinds of changes are we seeing, what's looking good, what's looking not so good, what do we need to work on, what can we be doing to continue what in many ways are the golden years of deer hunting in this country we cover a lot of stuff like that. We explore some really interesting trends that we're seeing, some maybe surprising data points that Kip and his team have pulled out. Uh, we also talk through some action, some things that we as deer hunters and managers can do tangibly to make things better, or to change the story, or to keep the good times going. We cover everything from you know current trends with buck age structure. We talk about antlerless and antler buck harvest numbers, where things are looking there. We talk through some really interesting things around how and why and when we should be targeting antlerless deer and why that's important to maintaining good deer hunting and a healthy herd and healthy balance with our habitat out there. Um, We dive into some policy some legislation that's particularly important. We talk about the importance of private land conservation, especially for deer and deer hunting, and the opportunity that provides a lot of us. Um, We do spend some time talking about CWD, which is not necessarily a fun thing to talk about, but we took advantage today to kind of level set, to see, okay, this has been a thing we've been talking about a long time. Where are we today? What's real? What's, you know what's the data show us today what's working what's not working what can we really do moving forward we get a new sense of all that and um man that's just scratching the surface there's a whole lot covered today i think that i know that every one of you listening is a deer hunter interested in white-tailed deer in the future wanting to make sure we've got these creatures to hunt to watch to chase to study To introduce your kids to or your friends to. I know this stuff matters to you, and I know um, that I think you'll be able to find some ideas here today that you can take action on to make sure this stuff lasts long, long into the future. So that's the plan. That's what we're gonna discuss. I will give you one more quick PSA, which is just an update on what I've been sharing with you over the last couple weeks, which is the latest on the Working for Wildlife Tour. This is a series of volunteer events that we are um, hosting and participating in in collaboration with a bunch of different conservation organizations where we're heading out to public land across the country and doing some good work. We are picking up trash, making habitat improvements, doing different stuff like that. I told you last week about the first event and our second event is coming up in just over a week. So I just want to give you another reminder. That is April 22nd, Earth Day up in Kalkaska, Michigan, in partnership with the MUCC, that's Michigan United Conservation Clubs. We're going to be building small game habitat, brush piles, some other habitat stuff that's going to be great for all sorts of creatures, including deer, of course, and um, we're going to have a good time. So I hope to see you there on Earth Day. If you can't make it or if you live in the other part of the country, man, don't let that stop you. Get out there on some public land by your house or your own deer property or just your backyard. And plant a tree, pick up some trash, get out there with some buddies, do a little something. I can promise you it does help, and it's a good time. So uh, that's it for me. Let's get into my chat with Kip Adams as we dive into the state of whitetails across the country. All right. Here with me now for what, I don't know, maybe it's the 10th or 11th, 12th time. I'm not sure what it is, Kip, but we've got uh, Kip Adams Back on the show. Thank you, Kip, for being so generous with your time over all these years.
2: Absolutely, Mark. My pleasure. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to believe we've had this many dear reports to talk about here. But uh, g- good information just keeps on coming.
0: Yeah. I, I just passed 10 years of doing this podcast, which blows my mind. I don't know where the time went, but uh, it's it's gone fast. So you and I both, are, we're <laughs> getting up there, Kip. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that that's not a good way to start this at all, Mark. Usually <laughs> we have a, we have a great conversation, but uh, it uh, it it certainly we have we've got to talk about a lot of deer stuff over the years, and it, it is pra- pretty crazy to think how long we've both been in the deer world, and uh, you know, and things we've been doing. So, I agree, time has certainly gone fast, and you know, I think it's because we both enjoy what we do so much that uh, true. Certainly doesn't drag, doesn't feel like a job. We're, we're both very fortunate.
0: Yeah, that is that is the truth. It's a good problem to have when it seems to fly by. So uh, I can't I can't complain. Um, but a- as you know, Kip, we've done these almost every year for. I- I'm not sure if it's been every one of those years that, that the pod- podcast has been around, but if not, it's really close. So the audience probably knows what to expect here, but uh, just in case they don't. You know, my hope is to, of course, review your latest edition of the deer report um, and some of the highlights, some of the trends, some of the things that you're particularly interested in. But then also, I think, hopefully leave folks with a better understanding of just where do we stand right now when it comes to deer and deer hunting and, and, and habitat and all those different factors that impact this pursuit and lifestyle that we love so much and the, and the resource that makes all that possible. Um, so that being said, Kip, if I can toss you into the deep end right out the gate, forgive me, um, but let's imagine you were a doctor, okay? Uh, like a medical doctor and deer and deer hunting th- as a combination, I guess if we'll talk the the animals and the lifestyle and the habitat necessary. If that was your patient, if you were the doctor and deer and deer hunting is your patient, how would you assess its, assess its general health today? If we just got out of our check-in for the year, what would you tell us? How would you assess or diagnose the current state of whitetails and whitetail hunting? And if you want to expand that to general deer, that's fine too. But what's, what's our standing right now?
2: I think it would be that the patient is in, for the most part, really good condition. There's a lot of very positive things. Maybe it's a professional athlete, you know, it's finely tuned, you know, well-muscled, great cardiovascular shape, but maybe it's had an injury that, that he or she is, is dealing with that's not at a 100%. I think that's a fair assessment relative to, to where deer hunting is. There's, we are in the golden age for, for so many aspects of it, and, uh, and I know that we'll talk about some of those on here today. So there's some really, really good things going on in the deer world today. Um, of course, it's not without us challenges, though. So as, as I alluded to, maybe an injury that they're getting over. It's kind of the, the disease aspect of, of what so many hunters have to deal with today with, with CWD, first and foremost. Certainly, there's some other deer diseases, but uh, that being the big one. So I think, I think it's very fair to say there's a lot of really, really good things going on,
0: um, but um, a little nagging injury that we have to deal with as well. Okay. So one of the things I, you know, uh, that's kind of my sense of things from the outside, kind of trying to assess where we're at. It seems like that's the case. But one of the, I guess, risks of being in that kind of situation where things are going pretty well, where, you know, you're you're on the Baltimore Ravens and you're playing well, life's good, you seem to be pretty high, you're riding high and happy, is that you can it can be tempting to let your guard down. It can be tempting to get lazy and just kind of ride that momentum. The good Let the good times keep rolling. It's tempting in those situations, I think, to... um, I don't know if apathy is the right word, but when there isn't a serious imposing threat or a boogeyman breathing down your neck, it's easy to not be engaged, to not be active. And so in... <laughs> Stepping away from the analogy, just directly what we're dealing with here, I worry sometimes that we deer hunters have it so good across so much of the country and the whitetail population and, and habitat. There's a lot of good things going on that it would be easy to lose sight or to not be involved in trying to perpetuate that. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever worry about that? I mean, I know this has been a thing that in the past there's been conversation around. It's like, man, the the duck hunters are really active or the upland hunters are really active with their conservation work and advocacy because like those things have needed it but whitetails for so long have been doing so well that we don't always get that engagement is is this I'm, I'm i'm rambling now kip are you worried about the same things is that something that makes sense am i onto something or am i overblowing it no i do think you're onto something and um you know i'm i'm not somebody that's
2: screaming the sky has fallen by any means but I think it's always good, to, you know, to keep our eye on on the prize here. You can look at waterfowl hunters today. You can look at turkey hunters today. You don't have to look very far to realize, holy cow! You know, it wasn't all that long ago we were at historically high turkey numbers and just tremendous turkey hunting, and that's not the case for a large part of uh, of that range today. Yeah. Same thing in waterfowl hunting. You know, there's you know there's there's a lot of work being done on that, but suddenly it, it's not the golden age anymore. So. I think what you're saying is a very fair assessment. We are enjoying some historically good deer hunting right now, but you know that's because hunters have been engaged so much in the past two decades and that today's hunters are so much more knowledgeable about deer and wanting to get engaged with these programs. So um, I think it's good that, that our hunters are engaged as much as they are, and uh, and I think it's important that they stay that way to make sure that we continue to, to have great deer hunting.
0: Yeah. So is there anything specifically before we dive into the report itself? Right out here at the top? Is there anything that you think we as a community need to be engaging in more or really keeping an eye on or making sure is top of our list to, you know, be ready to jump at the moment's notice to ensure that we don't end up in a situation like the turkey world? has been recently, or something else? How, how do we make sure we keep our position in our, our golden years? How do we keep that going, Kip, and avoid this, this slip back?
2: Well, I think the, the single largest threat to the future of what we have right now from a deer hunting world is, is chronic wasting disease. Um, continues to spread, continues to infect more deer herds. So I think that is where hunters need to stay in tune, um, need to do what they can to, to limit the spread of that. As of right now, we can't stop it, but we darn sure can limit where it is. And and that's something that every single hunter can engage in that fight. And and, that's not a fun thing to talk about. And so because of that, a lot of hunters don't. But we try to take the tack that, hey, this is not a good thing for sure. However, there is something that every hunter can do every day that he or she goes to the woods to help this. So I think that's an important message for hunters to hear and to realize And uh, the more hunters that do help with that, the better job we can do keeping the disease where it is right now, you know, and and giving science the time to to catch up and figure out a way to defeat it.
0: So since we're since this since you brought it up, let's drill into the CWD side of things a little bit um, because you're right. Like it is, it's one of those topics where I think there has been some real issue fatigue. I think folks have gotten. Uh, for better or worse tired of hearing about cwd or they have felt like well everyone made a a huge hullabaloo about it so many years ago but you know it, it pops up here and there but it's really not impacting me yet it's not really tanking anything that i'm seeing yet and so i think there's this continued perception that it's it's not looming or it's not what it was thought to be or that I, I don't know. I, you you just hear this kind of sentiment simmering still as CWD just becomes more and more prevalent. And there's almost, maybe what I'm getting at here is there's been like a shifting baseline where a long time ago when CWD first popped up, it was like, oh man, this is, this is is this is new. What do we do? But now it's almost becoming baked into the culture. Like we all know about it. It's there. And it's kind of silently there. What's your read on where we are now, Kip, with the CWD situation? And do you feel like on the research side with, with new things we've learned or what's the progress towards some kind of solution is, it just feels like we've been treading water for a long time. Am I right on that? What's your read?
2: I think you're right. Yeah, we, we have been treading water, or at least it feels like, you know, there's no good news about it because everything we hear is so dire and, uh, I think that there is some good news relative to some successes that the research has shown us. So, you know, for example, we have better ways to test for it today in the landscape than in the past. Um, we have ways that we can go out and identify without having to have a dead deer. You know, that's either shot during hunting season or as part of the targeted removal or are killed in the road. That's a huge advancement that we can now start to find new areas where this is. We are continuing to to uh, reduce the amount of time that it takes to get a sample back to a hunter, you know, if they harvest a deer until they find out whether that deer had the disease or not. So, you know, those are, those are things that are definite bright spots in the fight against the disease. Um, You know, there's, there's legislation now that that's helping states, you know, monetarily battle this disease. So um, for a long time, there just wasn't any good news at all and we're starting to see some, some victories with that. Now, what we, the disease is still a hundred percent fatal all deer, but at least we're starting to figure out ways to do a better job, uh, with surveillance and with monitoring and giving hunters some other things, you know, that, that can help them or at least help this be less of an inconvenience for them. So, uh, I think those are all good things and I'm, I'm hopeful that that's, you know, just on the cusp of more things to come that will help hunters. So, um, I'm I'm an optimist, you know, I firmly believe that we are gonna beat this someday. So uh I wanna do everything in my power to make sure that when we figure out how to beat it, it's in as few places as possible so that we can eradicate it as quickly as possible. I don't I don't wanna see this in every county that has white tails and mule deer and elk and just make it that much harder to to, to battle.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know how deep you've gone into this side of things, Kip, so if this is beyond your purview. Don't feel bad telling me that. But have we, you know, we've been, I can't remember what the year it was that CWD first popped up down there in Southwest Wisconsin, but it's been a good number of years and it feels like maybe 20 years or something like that now where we've been, you know, actively as a deer hunting community, talking about it, trying to deal with it, trying to adapt to it, trying to mitigate what's happening. Do you feel like we're making progress in that, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, in dealing with it? Ha- have we are we getting better at slowing the spread? Have the things we tried in certain States led to some best practices now that are actually working? Do you feel like that side of things is getting better? So that now 20 years later, we are doing a better job of slowing the spread. Um, has there been progress there? Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And,
2: and you're right. There was first confirmed in Wisconsin in 2002 from, from, deer that were harvested in the fall of '01. one. So yeah, it's been just over 20 years now. Wow. Um, there's a lot of wildlife professionals that have spent their entire career, you know, with with CWD. So at that time, we knew so little about it that um, there wasn't much hope at all. Fast forward to today, and yes, many states are doing a, a much better job than Wisconsin was able to do at limiting the spread. Uh, Illinois is a perfect example. They got they found the disease at the same time as, as Wisconsin, took a very different tact at trying to reduce it. And much of those initial areas in Wisconsin today, the prevalence rate is over 40% of some of those deer in Illinois. We're still in the single digits, you know, four or 5% prevalence rate, you know, strictly from a management standpoint. So we've seen, you know what, Illinois has done a much better job at limiting that spread past two decades. Well, there's a lot of other states who are just now finding it, or maybe have found it within the last five years that are able to do more of what Illinois did you know, to, to help limit that spread. So we, we definitely have some case examples today of, of things to do and things not to do, and that helps every state that, that now finds it or uh, you know, continues to deal with it.
0: You've got a big section in the report about, uh, I think the terminology is targeted removal for CWD management. Um, is that a big part of what Illinois got right? Or or if not, what do you think you know, what is the best practice that Illinois has has shown works so much better than what's going on in Wisconsin? Yeah, that is what they got
2: right. And early on, Wisconsin employed that strategy as well, but for political reasons they, they had to forego it, so they stopped. Illinois continued with that, and uh we are a big fan of that. Partly because it allows agencies to go in and strategically remove deer in areas where you know you have the disease. So you can remove far more CWD-positive animals by shooting fewer animals in total than than any other way. So what that means is you can remove those animals from the landscape, which helps all the deer that are there, the remaining deer, but then it helps hunters too because that is the least inconvenience to, to hunters. You know, it's outside of the hunting season. It, it involves the, the smallest number of properties, the smallest number of actual deer. So it's best for hunters and it's best for the deer resource. So, so, so targeted removal can be a really, really good strategy in those areas. And, and Illinois is living proof of it.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I know it's, I know that's no fun for the person who owns and hunts that property where it happens. Um, but it sure seems to make sense for the long term. Um, and, and the numbers, like you said, in Illinois certainly seem to back that up. It's hard to argue with that. Um, you mentioned one other piece of good news on the CWD side, which is some legislation. I'm assuming you're referencing the CWD Research and Management Act, um, which seemed like one of the you know, most substantial wins we've had from a legislative perspective when it comes to deer, maybe, in a while. Um, am I right on that? Is is it truly going to be impactful? This is the thing that Folks were talking about last year really trying to push across the finish line, and we did it. Now what?
2: Yeah, you're right, and, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, Up to this point, in the very early years, there was some federal funding to, to monitor CWD and to collect samples. All that went away almost 20 years ago. So the, you know, the cost of this has been on the state wildlife agencies you know, almost the entire cost which means then they have to take money away from other things they would much rather do like enhanced habitat and, you know, hunter recruitment and, you know, public access, all those things that as hunters, we would love to have our state wildlife agency working on so much of that money got shifted into disease sampling, disease monitoring, et cetera. Well, now the CWD research and management act makes $70 million available a year, 35 million for research. $35 Thirty-five million for management, and that will be split among the states. So that suddenly, now the money the state wildlife agencies had for those other things we wanted them to do, they can put that money back in those coffers. So this is this legislation is a huge win for deer hunters,
0: uh, for all wildlife enthusiasts, and, and ultimately our deer herds. So that this is a really, really good thing. Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad that was. That was one of those nice last-minute add-ins there at the end of the year last year that that came to fruition, and it seemed like, man, on paper, this sounds like it should be a good thing because, you know, we can't we can't solve the CWD issue and finally push that off the plate unless there's the funding necessary to get the research done, to get the monitoring done, to do all those different things. So I was I was glad to see that, um, and now we'll we'll just have to see what happens coming out of it. But uh, but thank you for humoring me, Kip. By starting with like the downer topic, which is not, not the most fun thing to talk about, though. But I feel like, as you, in your analogy, like the nagging injury that this elite athlete has right now can't be ignored. If you ignore the nagging injury, that nagging injury all of a sudden becomes something that knocks you out for a year or two or three or takes you out of the league completely. You know, so let's let's look it in the hairy eyeball versus sweeping underneath the rug. Hmm. Now I agree. It doesn't
2: do us any good to hide from it. So uh, there's, there is there is so much good stuff going on. So uh, I, I think we're fine starting with that one and getting that right out of the way. And then uh, we can uh, just start talking about good stuff and gain momentum throughout the throughout this talk.
0: Yes, exactly. So so give me some of the good news, Kit. What, what's uh, maybe one or two of the most exciting or important takeaways that you took out of this year's report as you compiled it and as you've reviewed it?
2: Uh, We see just in sheer numbers of deer that hunters are killing remains very high. Uh, A really strong deer harvest across the whitetails range. Um, We have mule deer harvest as well. That's a separate section in here. And, uh, you know, relative to five or 10 years ago, mule deer are doing really well too. So, So that's good. We had such a long slide in mule deer numbers that the good news is many of Those populations today have either stabilized or some of them are increasing. So mule deer are looking pretty good relative to where they were uh, a few years ago. And whitetails are really, really strong. Uh, We're maintaining very high buck harvest rates, almost historically high numbers, but we have better age structure in the buck side than we've had in at least the last 100 and maybe last 150 years. And, uh, And that's pretty cool from a deer health standpoint. And it's obviously really cool from a hunter standpoint.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's one of those things that folks are feeling on the ground. I mean, just in my, you know, 15 years in this side of things, running wired to hunt and everything, I remember seeing these early reports about, you know, age structure and, and that data that was showing where things were, you know, for example, in my home state of Michigan, and and I have been able to over the last 15 plus years seen on the ground with my own eyes those changes here and i know they're being felt across the state or across the the country sorry and uh and yeah i mean i know we've talked about this in the past but that age structure it leads to a different hunting experience whether or not you're wanting to target mature bucks it just leads to a more natural herd a different dynamic across the landscape it seems to have a lot of ripple effects right I i mean that's been what the QDMA preached for so many years was that there's all these there's this cascading series of benefits when you manage for a natural herd in balance with the habitat, and 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 you must. I think we've talked about this last year, maybe too, but it must be really rewarding for you, Kip, and the rest of the team there to see so many of the things that you've advocated for over the last couple decades, you know, manifesting in real life now.
2: Oh, it is it it it's so rewarding, you know, because. We want to see deer herds manage well, you know, and be able to express what they can and, you know, and show the way that they evolve. And, uh, you know, and hunters are the ultimate beneficiaries of that. So you know, being a lifelong deer hunter, it's great to see hunters be able to photograph older bucks during the course of the year and, you know, and see very natural behaviors like a group of bachelor. Uh, group of bucks in the summer and, you know, an an older deer in the fall, you know, a chase mature bucks during the rut and fighting and just everything that goes with it. Uh, It is very, very rewarding for sure. And I vividly remember um, maybe 15 years ago, I built a talk that I gave on, you know, uh, where, where the best places were to kill mature bucks. And uh, gosh, it was like, you know, five places in the country. <laughs> that was <laughs> That's where if you wanted a mature buck, you went to one of these places and that was really it. And uh, just think about where we are today. You know, you legitimately have the chance of killing a, a mature buck, you know, in every single state that whitetails live. So uh, it's not just a, you know, a handful of hunters anymore, or you don't have to travel numerous states to get to one of these spots anymore. You know, deer are, are accessible to, to just about every hunter in the country and you can, you can be in any state that whitetails are and legitimately have a chance to, to, to hunt mature deer. And, uh, and that's really, really cool.
0: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
1: For all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in store or online stop by o'reilly auto parts today or visit us at o'reillyauto.com slash eater. that's o'reillyauto.com slash meater now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code Eater.
0: Now, while on the buck side of things and age structure and, and sheer numbers, that all seems to be pretty darn positive. Um, you know, the other half of the quality deer management equation uh, has always been also managing the antlerless population and and that is how you manage the overall population in relation to habitat right um and that was the, the antlerless side of things stood out to me though is, is another possible eh, this looks like a little concerning and i know over the last couple of years you've been seeing this too this this idea or not idea but the fact that we seem to be getting a, a reduced antlerless harvest compared to antler bucks when it really should be the reverse if i I think I got the stat here, right? Tell me if this is wrong, but I think in the report, it showed that 59% of States killed more bucks than does in the 2021 season, which is what the is from. Did I get that right? And what's your read on that? And the trend that we've seen pop up the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, we, we, the the one thing that we need to to really start getting a handle on is we do need to start shooting more antlerless deer than antler bucks again. Um, for a bunch of years during the early and mid-2000s we did that and that's what gave us a bunch of the, the successes that we have today relative to correct number of deer for what our habitats can support um, but we come along you know 2014-15 basically a lot of states through increased antlerless harvests had balanced deer herds with their habitat so they strategically then reduced the number of antlerless deer that hunters needed to take. You know, we don't need to shoot so many anymore because we're in a good spot. Well, that corresponded with a couple really bad hemorrhagic disease years where we lost a bunch of deer. It's about the time that in the southeastern U.S., we were seeing greatly elevated coyote populations and reduced fawn recruitment rates. So there was a lot of things that worked together there and really scared a bunch of hunters into, oh man, we were shooting a bunch of does things were good all of a sudden now our agencies are telling us not to shoot as many and deer herds are dropping so what that did is that had a ripple effect where for several years after that hunters really pulled back and purposely were passing on antlerless deer that probably didn't need to as much so we're at a point today where you know suddenly more states are harvesting bucks than antlerless deer now which is not a not a good thing there are some states that should do that States, Northern New England, uh, some of the states in the, in the West that are kind of on the fringe of whitetail habitat, yeah, they can be very successful by harvesting more bucks than does each year, but most of the U.S., they should be harvesting more antlerless deer than bucks or else those deer herds just grow too high, and, uh, and you end up back like we were 20 and 30 years ago when there was just way more deer than, than we had food for. So, we're... We're still in a good shape, but the last couple of years, we have started to, to sound the alarm that, hey, it, we're, we've really backed off on the antler side. We're not backing off on the buck side. We're killing more bucks than we ever were, uh, but we need hunters to, to start shooting some more antlerless deer as well to make sure we don't get ourselves in the same predicament that we had back in the 70s and 80s and
0: 90s. Yeah, and, and so is it still the case? So I know you mentioned there was a little bit of a blowback after populations dropped and hunters got scared and worried about this is, is it still like a, a cult, a hunter culture issue right now that's leading to these reduced antlerless harvests or is, or is any of it regulation?
2: It, it's hunter culture. Um, there are opportunities to shoot more antlerless deer in almost every state that hunters are taking advantage of. So, uh, it's just, it's hunters choosing not to, to shoot those deer. Um, one of the statistics that we monitor is just hunter success rates. And if we take a look around the country, you know, every hunter has a chance to shoot a buck. In many states, you have an opportunity to shoot multiple bucks. You could shoot multiple antlered deer. But nationally, only about 41% of all the hunters shoot a single deer. So less than half of all the hunters that went afield last year shot a deer. And wow. only about 18% of all the hunters will shoot more than one. So what we have is, you know, uh, this focus more on the buck side than the antler side. And Hey, I get it. I mean, there's more big deer running around than ever before. So we have a lot of hunters that say, you know what, maybe I'm only going to eat one deer or can't eat more than that. So if I'm only going to shoot one, I'm going to shoot a buck if I get a chance. And more hunters today are having a chance of shooting deer that are three, four, you know, five years old. It's, it's hard to knock a hunter for shooting, you know, a, a middle-aged or a mature buck. Yeah. So what we need to do, Mark, is convince more of them, all right, that's totally fine, and congratulations for shooting that, but let's do, you know, help out our deer herds and also take an deer. steer. And, and I think the way we can encourage more folks to do that is, you know, help provide more from the, the venison donation side where, you know, more people would donate a deer if they didn't either have to pay for the processing or pay for a portion of the processing. So I think we have a really good opportunity to help hunters from that end where they can shoot that antlerless deer, either give it to a friend or needy family or take it to a place that can be donated, you know, at no cost to them where, Hey, they're, they're helping the deer herd. They're feeding the needy family, man. They're a champion of society. So, oh yeah, uh, I think that is the next thing as hunters uh, and as managers where, where we can really make a big game.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a great, great point. And something that um, if uh, let, let's take a little step back and, and dive into that a little more, because I think there's a bunch of questions that pop up for hunters when they start thinking about antlerless harvest um, questions like, well, how do I know if, my specific property has enough does to be shooting a bunch of them or how do I know how many does to shoot? Or I mean, there's a whole bunch of questions. What about when's the best time to be shooting a doe or is it okay to shoot a doe that has two young of the year with it? Um, There's all these new questions that pop up when you start talking about doe harvest that just don't seem to be there when it comes to bucks. Um, So if you'd humor me Kip, can we tackle a couple of those questions since we're on the topic of analyst harvest, since this is so important, let's just get some of these big boogeyman questions out of the way so that hunters listening today will can, can say, okay, yes, I do need to participate in analyst harvest, or at least we do across the country in many places. So how can I better understand these specific questions to know if I can on my property and the right way to do it? Um, do you want to tackle a couple of those, Kip, or do you want me to repeat them uh, while they're fresh? Sure. No,
2: I, I'm glad to do that because I, I do think this is the most important facet in deer management. And uh, as much as I, I like bucks and as much as I like seeing, you know, the bucks die properly managed, the most important point is, is not having too many deer for for that landscape or, or too few deer. You know, it's about having the, the biologically appropriate number. So everybody gets enough to eat. We're not degrading habitat, all those other wildlife species there you know, are able to benefit from a good habitat. So, so it all starts with the antlerless side. And uh, we have all kinds of, of articles on our website that folks can run through to be able to calculate how many does they should remove from the area they are. But just real basic, you know, as a general rule of thumb, for the vast majority of, of white-tailed hunters, you should be removing more does than you are bucks on an annual basis. Um, there are certainly some exceptions in some of those states, you know, they're kind of that tail uh, extremes, but for most of us, you know, if you're a landowner and you're going to shoot, you know, one or two bucks off your property each year, be taking at least one or two does, make sure you're taking at least that many. And that's a, that's a great place to start, but it's very simple for, for people to be able to just take a look at what's going on and assess, you know what, do we think I have too many deer for the amount of food or not? If you plant food plots, you know, if you have an exclusion cage there, is the food outside of the exclusion cage as tall as it is inside? For 99% of the people who plant food plants, the answer is no. That means those deer that, in that property could use more food. So in your woods, do you have all kinds of new trees regenerating, all these little seedlings and saplings? Or is it, you know, a, a browse line where deer have eaten everything? If that's the case, there's not enough food. It means either you need to enhance habitat to, to provide more food. And you also need to then reduce deer numbers, so there's less mouths uh, uh, vying for that. So, so there's some pretty simple things that, that hunters can do to at least start to assess. You know, what are there more deer than there should be? And I may even take it back. Nobody thinks there's more deer than there should be, and I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. I like to see deer when I'm hunting. Are there more deer than there is available food? And if the answer is yes, hey, take an extra doe this year, you know, and then uh, and then assess again next year. So. That's some pretty easy things hunters can do uh, to to help, you know, battle that.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. And like you mentioned, I'll, I'll just second the, uh, the point you made about the fact that you guys have some great resources on the website, uh, that break down, you know, some more detailed ways to assess what your population is on your property. I know there's some different, you know, surveying techniques that can give you a better sense of, okay, what's the herd looking like? What would be the appropriate antlerless harvest, um, they can they can find all that. What's the website? Is it deerassociation.org or, or what is it know?
2: Dot com. Yep, deerassociation.com.
0: Okay, perfect. So definitely check that out for anybody who wants more details. Um, what about a couple more? What about the best time of year to take a doe? There's a lot of folks, myself included, that at times have worried about shooting a doe early in the year because I didn't want to mess up my buck hunting prospects, and I always waited until the end of the year. And then many years, I would push it off, push it off, push it off. And then when I'm actually trying to kill a doe at the end of the year, it ends up being harder than I think. <laughs> and I don't have as much success as I wanted. <laughs> um, what's your take on that, Kip? I, I know I've heard I've heard it said that early and often is better. But what, what would you say?
2: I'm a big fan of early season uh, uh, antlerless harvest, partly because, as you alluded to, they get really wise. The end of hunting season and very hard to see. So, I, I personally go into every hunting season with a, a doe harvest prescription for our farm. I calculate this is how many does we're going to shoot this year, share that with all of the friends and family members that I know will be hunting. And, and we have a bunch of people that hunt our farm. So, we start every season with a plan on um, hey, this is how many we're going to kill. So, the earlier you can get started at that, the more likely you are to meet that quota. And I love to take care of that early in the year because then I can, I can save that food that those does would have been eaten during the course of the year for other deer. And there is no better feeling than to get to the rut, which for many people, that's their favorite time to hunt and know, man, I've already shot one doe or two does or wherever how many I'm gonna, I literally can just focus the whole rest of my hunting season on hunting a buck. So that is a great place to be because I know so many people don't want to mess something up in the rut, you know, by shooting a doe. And um, Although having a dead doe nearby is literally one of the absolute best buck magnets you can have during the rut. But I'm a big fan of that early season and, uh, and I personally shoot does early and I have the people that hunt our farm all shoot does from opening day of archery, get them as early as we can. Uh, that's just a uh, really good for the deer herd.
0: Yeah. And another plus of that approach, at least if you take enough does is that if you have way too many does during the rut, it tends to lead to uh, a situation where the bucks don't need to work too hard to find a receptive doe. And so they're locked down more often with a doe and traveling long distances less and, that leads to you know you not getting to see the frenetic chasing and seeking of bucks. But if you've got a more Im- imbalanced structure of bucks or ratio between bucks and does, if you have taken a few more does off the farm before the rut, those bucks will need to travel a little more, be a little bit more active, you know, work a little harder, which which leads to hopefully better hunting encounters, right? Exactly,
2: and you know what, most does on a property, at least in the northern two thirds of the U.S. They're going to be bred over a very short window. So, you know, the fewer does that you actually have coming into heat any given day just adds to the excitement of the rut and adds to, you know, to to more movement by those bucks. Uh, The rut can be an incredibly fun place to be and time to hunt, or it can be one of the loneliest times of the whole year. I've had plenty of sits during the, you know, early mid-November on really good properties where, you know, I saw almost nothing, Uh you know, and it's because you know, all the bucks were with those or, you know, there just wasn't a hot doe moving. So it's, it's far better for hunters to have bucks on their feet, seeking those does. And that happens, you know, when you, when you have a very balanced sex ratio, as those deer come into the, into rut rather than just having does everywhere.
0: Yeah. Okay, here's another situation that a lot of guys will balk at Guys or girls balk when they are in the tree And they're going to go out there and try to take a doe But then here comes the mature doe with a yearling or two There's some folks that see that and, and they're really worried about you know, If those does should be on the, the target list I guess you might say uh, What's your take on that situation? Is it okay to take that mature doe uh, Or should you not?
2: Um, As long as those fawns do not have spots, they are plenty big enough to survive on their own. You know, if you're in an area where they were just really late born or, you know, your season is just really early where, yeah, you can still see spots on them, then I would go ahead and pass that doe. Um, If they don't have spots, she's on the target list. Now, I totally get some people do not want to shoot a doe that has fawns with her. Um, You know, there's no biological reason not to they they just don't want those fawns to stay there, and I get it. So if that's the case, you know you can pass on that one. But um, it makes no difference to me if a doe comes under my stand and has fawns. if there's no spots, and I can get a good shot at that doe, I'm taking it. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, I feel like that covers the the top level questions that I get at least a lot when it comes to should you take a doe, should you not? When should you? When should you not? Um, so hopefully that arms folks with a little bit more information to go out there this coming season and, uh, you know, get after it. And like you said earlier, Kip, I mean, I've yet, I've never once not been able to find a home for a deer that I harvested. There's, there's anytime I had more than I needed in my freezer, there's always been someone who would like that deer, who would like to have that meat. Um, it's, it's such a great thing to be able to share with people like you said, almost every state has a donation program now. But if you ask around to friends and family, it's often very easy to find someone who could use that meat just within your own network too. So there's there's lots of opportunities to do good both for the herd, for the landscape, and for people who, who could use that meat. So it's a, it's a win-win-win as far as I'm concerned.
2: No, I agree. There, there's data in the U.S. that shows somewhere around one in seven households are food insecure, meaning they don't have wow. enough protein. So, so think about that. One out of seven. So how many is that just in your neighborhood? So, yeah, it, it's a great way for hunters to provide food to, to families who need it. And, uh, you know, it, it never helps, to, you know, to, uh, or never hurts, I guess, to, to help our public image. So hunters are already providing a free ecological service to society by, you know, managing deer, by shooting deer. So, uh, you know, if we can add to that by helping feed folks, you know, who, who need some some protein, Uh, That's a pretty cool place to be.
0: Yeah. So so pivoting a little bit here, Kip, there was another um, report or kind of topic you guys took a look at within the report, which was uh, kind of a deep dive into the breakdown of where folks were killing deer, private versus public. And I believe the number was that nine out of 10 deer killed in America were killed on private land. Uh, versus public and there's been a lot of talk you know around this public land versus private land topic whether it be how we invest our dollars or our advocacy efforts or our time and energy um what 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 was your guys takeaway from that when you saw that data come rolling in that this vast majority of the deer are being killed still on private land what does that tell you what do you what do you garner from that what what should we be thinking about too
2: yeah you know what we if you just take a look at public land in the United States, we, we're very lucky, and you know that we have over 600 million acres. So just looking at it, you think, man, this this is great. And there's a lot of people that couldn't hunt if it wasn't public land. However, about 90% of that public land is in the western U.S., whereas you know about 90% of the whitetails are east of the the Rocky Mountains. So uh, you know they're in the eastern two. Third. So, where we have the most of our public land doesn't really match up with where our whitetails are or where most of our hunters are. So, most deer managers, I think, suspected that the, the majority of whitetails shot are taken on private land, but we never had a number until this year. So, as we start looking at that, we realize, and what you said is correct, it, it's nearly nine out of every 10 whitetails. It actually came out at 88%. Of all the whitetails taken, and, and we shoot about 6 million whitetails a year. So 88% of those are taken on private land. So uh, I knew the number would be high, but uh, I didn't realize it would be quite that high.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty stark. So what do you think that indicates, Kip? Does that, is, that, is that a function of how many people are hunting on private versus hunting on public? Or is that a function of how much more productive the private lands are than the public?
2: I think that's a little bit of both. And uh and if you look at the eastern two thirds of the US, you know, states range anywhere from uh fifty some percent private land up to like ninety-nine percent private land, like in Texas. And and obviously a lot of deer hunters in Texas and a lot of land. So there's a lot more opportunity to hunt private land for you know all the hunters in general. So there's a lot of private land that we have, but then also you just have so much more work over the last two decades. Work, work that's being occurring on private land to enhance habitat for deer. So, take right beside your house or right beside my house. You take a landowner that's doing food plots. He's you know has a bunch of early early successional vegetation. They're working in the woods. Even if right next door is private land and it's all over mature hardwood forest, you know with nothing underneath. You're going to have more deer on that private landowner, you know, that's really getting engaged. So I think we have more opportunity on private land because there's so much more of it in the eastern two-thirds of the U.S. And then you just have so much more work going on. This is not a knock at all on our, you know, our state wildlife agencies or our federal agencies relative to habitat management that they're doing. But we all know the stories like with the Fish and Wild, or the Forest Service that you know can't cut on forests, you know, because of the political reasons. And so the private landowners have so much more flexibility relative to what they can do to enhance habitat specifically for deer. And and we're seeing it. Um, I know there was a stat out of the Southeast Deer Partnership uh, this past year that deer hunters in the Southeast alone, so the Southeastern U.S., they spend about $183 million a year on wildlife planning. Wow. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money on food plots and fruit tree plantings and other things specifically for deer hunting. So I I think that just highlights all of this really good work that's going on on private land to make things better for deer.
0: Yeah, and when I look at that, I just see this huge opportunity that we have. You know, it's really, not really, well, I would say it's really hard. It's, It's pretty darn hard for the average deer hunter to influence what happens on public lands as far as you know conservation work, habitat work, improving that habitat for wildlife. Um, it's, it's pretty darn hard. It requires a whole lot of different layers. There's a lot of cooks in that kitchen to make good things happen on those acres. Very, very important acres, like you said. But it's it's hard and slower to make positive changes there. But when you like as you said, on these private lands, um, there is this huge opportunity we have not only to improve our deer hunting, but really to address a lot of different wildlife issues. Um, You look at any of these species that are not doing as well as deer, like turkeys or songbirds, upland birds, pollinators. Um, We have a huge, huge footprint across the country managed by hunters where we can just go fix the problem ourselves in many ways. We don't need to wait for the government. We don't need to wait for some new law. We could just take matters into our own hands um, because we have influence over so many of these private acres that are so important, um, I, I just see it as this like superpower that we have compared to almost anyone in the country. We, as a hunting community, have you know prioritized owning or managing land, and we can use it for the greater good, which is which is kind of exciting to me. Um, I mean, do, do, does that make does that resonate?
2: It does. And, and I agree with that. And, and, you know, and this is not to diminish the public lands that we have or, or the good work on public lands by any means. We certainly need more public lands in the East and we need to do a better job managing habitat on a bunch of our public lands. Um, but it just highlights the importance of these private holdings. And the cool thing about, you know, deer driving this system, if, if people are doing good work for deer then all those other wildlife species are benefiting as well, you know, Young forests, you know, are awesome for for grouse and woodcock. You know, the pollinators that, that need help. Early successional vegetation is perfect for butterflies and bees and, and you know those grassland birds. And so, it uh, it's pretty cool that in the name of deer, and even though the deer is kind of the carrot at the end of the stick, there are so many other wildlife species benefiting from this good work. Um, that's one of the reasons I am so proud through the NDA, you know, of all of the habitat enhancement stuff that we teach. You know, and and I'm proud from a deer hunter end to know that deer hunters are driving this whole system. So, uh, And it it is amazing the number of acres that are being impacted, you know, through work to make things better for deer and and maybe see a few more deer or, or kill a bigger buck in the fall.
0: Yeah, there's a tremendous ripple effect. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
1: For all things auto, do it yourself, and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
0: I'm curious. I've looked into this, and I've tried to pull the numbers, and I'm curious if you know of any more recent numbers or more built out. But, but I found a report from you guys back in 2009 that stated back then, just within the membership of what was then the QDMA, there were about 13 million acres of land owned for hunting back in 2009 and then i also saw a us fish and wildlife service estimate that said that and i think this was maybe a 2018 report on this one i think uh they said that there was approximately 440 million acres of private land that was either leased or owned for wildlife dependent recreation which i think from what i, was, I understand it, that would mostly be hunting um Have you seen any other data like that that quantifies, you know, what our footprint is out there as far as land managed by hunters or by deer hunters or or anything like that, that could kind of get a sense of the scale Uh, of that opportunity?
2: Yeah, I have not seen an updated uh, Fish and Wildlife Service number for that. Um, But yes, I think that is mostly for hunting. Uh, Somewhere around 80% of all hunters in the U.S. are deer hunters. So the vast majority of that would be for deer hunting. Um, I do know that with our Deer Steward Program, uh, the classes that we teach, um, we've been teaching them since 2009. um, And since then, we measure impact of those classes. You know, everybody that comes through, you know, how many acres do you own or manage? And and a lot of people that take that don't own any. But we've taught those to a lot of state wildlife agencies and and deer managers. So uh, I know that we alone folks have come through our deer a program have impacted over fifteen million acres of land. So, you know, and that's wow. you know, there's like four thousand graduates in that. So four thousand people that have come through one of our classes. That many acres. So think about all of the others out there, you know, that are adding into this as well. I mean, there's just a huge footprint of wildlife habitat across the country. So, you know, it's no wonder deer are doing so good and in in so many places, and you know, and other other wildlife species are, are strong as well. So it's there's there's a lot being done in in the name of wildlife, and that's one of the things that that irritates me. You know, when non hunters who who don't understand this part, you know, start attacking hunters for for certain things. Then, you know, even if you don't choose to deer hunt, you know, that's fine if you don't want to, but man, at least recognize, you know, all of the services that a deer hunter is providing. And if you like feeding those birds, please recognize that a deer hunter is largely responsible for those songbirds being alive and, you know, being able to come to your window. So, um, that's, that's one thing that as hunters, we need to do a better job telling that story, you know, cause it's about way more than, you know, just pulling the trigger in the fall. If you're a deer hunter.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's so true. And what a, what an incredible you know, ripple effect you guys have had with those deer steward courses, that, that number at 15 million, that's, that's wild. Um And I guess, you know, I guess one last thing on this topic is recognizing the importance of these private lands to conservation. Like if we want to impact wildlife populations, you you, you can't ignore private lands. We've, we've kind of demonstrated that. Now, I think when we've looked at the scale of these acres and how much of the wildlife is on these private lands. So if we're going to do anything good for them. It's got to happen on private lands just as much, if not more so, than on public. Um, I think that just makes it even more obvious how important private land conservation related programs and funding is, too, which, which all brings me back to the upcoming farm bill, um, which will be, you know, being uh, kind of hashed out over the coming months leading into this fall for the 2023 farm bill, which, which has so many of these private land conservation related issues and funding mechanisms and programs as part of that. Um, We're actually going to have a full deep dive episode coming up this month on the farm bill, but I'm just curious if there's anything from your perspective as part of the NDA that you guys at the organization particularly want us deer hunters thinking about when it comes to this upcoming version of the farm bill. Is there anything we should know or that we should be, Talking to our representatives and senators about to make sure that a good for deer and good for wildlife version of the farm bill uh, gets gets signed and approved this year.
2: Well, I think one thing that's important for, for hunters and and state wildlife agencies to realize is just knowing how many deer are, are shot on public. I'm sorry, on private land, and the importance of that. There are some states that have, you know, private land programs. Missouri is a perfect example. You know, they have a a bunch of state wildlife agency biologists that are working on research and others on public land or, you know, everything in the state. But then they have a specific private lands division to work with private landers to help them enhance habitat, to help them manage deer, et cetera. You know, and there are some states that they have their staff. You know statewide staff and you know there, there's no preference at all given to private land i think that we are coming into a day and age where we need to recognize just how important private land management is and that i would love to see every state wildlife agency have a staff that works specifically with private landowners i think the farm bill is a great way to do that look at all of the, the pheasants forever farm bill biologists that help private landowners enhance habitat you know for upland birds Um, I think that there's a a synonym with deer that, that we should be taking advantage of. Um, certainly not, not to take away anything from other duties of our, of our state agencies, but I think there are some that feel that it's wrong to just focus on private lands. And I think we have enough data now on deer harvest, deer hunter numbers that are, that are hunting our private land, that that's a big deal. Um, there's 29 states that have a private land access program, so. There's room to grow. That should be all of our states, you know, have that. where the state agency works specifically with landowners to, to get some more of those acres into private land access. And I think we should have a staff at the state agency helping those private landowners enhance that habitat to make it even better for, for deer and other wildlife. That's something that 20 years ago would have been not even discussed. 10 years ago, they start to discuss it. But yeah, maybe, maybe not. I think today, this is a no-brainer. That should be happening on all these states that have
0: whitetails. Yeah, that, that just makes all the sense in the world, um, and it's it's great that there are those types of things starting to happen now. Um, what else, Kip? When you look at this report, zooming back out a little bit, when we look at the 23 edition of the report, we've, we've kind of covered the private land versus public land thing pretty well. We covered the nagging injury of CWD. We took a deep dive into the dough harvest and the importance of all that. Is there any other big takeaway here that we we really would be remiss if we didn't cover um when you look at the important stuff that you touched on in that report
2: i think it's important for for folks to know just how many hunters we have out there um we know that there are somewhere between nine and 11 million deer hunters each year in the u.s um there's more deer hunters than that if you take a look at the number that i've hunted at least once within the last five years but uh there's any given year, somewhere around 10 million deer hunters. And uh, we often fight amongst the different fractions of, of when we hunt deer. So, you know, we know that about 22% of all of our hunters, deer hunters, I'm sorry, will hunt with a muzzle muzzleloader. About twice that many hunt with a bow or crossbow, so it's about 40%. And about twice that many hunt with a firearm. So what we have seen with a lot of expanded archery seasons over the past decade um, and expanded and muzzleloader opportunities. We really haven't increased the deer harvest much. We just kind of, uh, made it occur at a larger portion of our deer season. You know, where so many States, the vast majority occurred with firearms. Now we've seen about the same number shot, but a lot of them are shot earlier in the year, you know, particularly with the use of crossbow. Some hunters get all upset about that. I'm thinking, man, thanks for hunting, being a hunter and continuing to hunt. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that we see more firearms hunters also hunting with a bow or also hunting with a muzzleloader. I I don't think that dilutes us at all. Or, you know, I think that's a good thing. They were just taking advantage of more of the opportunities. I would much rather see somebody pick up a a bow or a crossbow and hunt in October than not hunt at all, you know, in in November, December. So I think just knowing when those numbers are letting hunters see, you know, like what the state by state breakdowns, you know, are for the different Uh, categories, I think that's important. And so certainly being able to monitor them and watch how that changes over time, I think is good for for deer management and good for hunters.
0: That's a really, really important topic and and great point. And I think, uh, so I want you to say this one more time to make sure that I heard it right and everybody else heard it right. Are you telling me that when a state opens a crossbow season, that they open archery, to being able to use excuse me to use crossbows during archery season. When that happens, that's not devastating and changing the deer population and the herd dynamics and the uh, number of deer being killed. Is that what you're saying?
2: That is correct and and we've looked at all the states that have, you know, crossbow seasons and so there, there's no state that has had to reduce harvest opportunity once they've opened crossbows. You know, they're not devastating the buck side, they're not devastating the antlers side. In most cases, they just redistribute when uh, those harvests occur. And they tend to now occur a little earlier in the year during, uh, you know, an archery season
0: rather than during the firearm season. All right. There you have it. The data has spoken. We don't need to be so uh, <laughs> so worried about that when it comes down the line. It seems like every state, whenever that gets put out there, there's this, this, this crazy tizzy of, of fear and worry about it. And um, I'm glad to see that numbers have not shown some kind of negative impact. Um, But that does lead me to one other thing, which we, we did chat about this last year, Kip, but I'm just curious to hear, you know, as things have evolved, where your head's at on it and what your sense of the challenge is. And that is hunter recruitment versus hunter crowding or access challenges. There's this, you know, for a long number of years, we've been hearing about, you know, lowering recruitment the fact that there's there's fewer and fewer new hunters coming into our lifestyle how the demographics are changing and there's a lot of folks aging out and so there's been this um, long-running concern about how do we bring new folks into the fold and there's been some really great programs put in place like the field to fort program that you guys have at NDA helping do that helping educate new hunters helping mentor new hunters Um, it's you know being involved in some of that stuff has been some of the very best things I've done as a deer hunter in my life um but on the flip side there's been this growing um kind of backlash to that i guess from some folks who are concerned that you know public lands are becoming overcrowded and that there's too many hunters out there now today and you can't get access on private land anymore because everything is already being hunted or is being leased by hunters and you know public lands are being loved to death and so there's this I don't know if it's a loud minority, maybe it probably is just a loud minority, but there is a loud, some number of folks who are saying, forget hunter recruitment. We should hoard it all to ourselves because there's too many people out there right now and it's ruining things. Um, what's your sense of the reality of this Kip? Um, is it different than where you were a year ago? Are you more or less concerned about it? Um, what's your take?
2: Yeah. And I get the, the crowding end and I'm the same way. You know, when I go on and I, I don't want to be crowded. Um, it's always nice to have more of the woods to ourselves. Um, I think that's kind of a selfish view of it though, you know, because the, the wildlife management doesn't depend on just me. It depends on me and you and, and every other hunter that we have. So it, as our hunter numbers age out and fortunately we have about the same number of hunters that we did last year or, you know, a few years ago, but, but the average age continues to get older. So very soon we're going to have a big drop in hunter numbers. And that's why, you know, the Field to fort programs and others are so important. And, and thank you for, for your involvement and ours and everything you do to, to help recruit hunters. Um, I think if we look at the end of the day, take a look at the actual number of hunters on the landscape. And, and we've done this for the different regions. The western U.S., certainly big, wide open spaces. They only average one deer hunter per square mile. Now, certainly people travel to the West. I get it. But in large part, one deer hunter per square mile. Uh, the southeastern U.S. averages four deer hunters per square mile. The Midwest averages five. The Northeast averages nine. And my home state of Pennsylvania has the most. We average about 14 deer hunters per square mile. So so I get it from the hunter crowding end, you know. There's not always a deer behind every tree, but at times it feels like there's a hundred behind every tree. <laughs> yeah, You know, with 14 and a half deer, I think so much of it is what people grew up hunting. If you grew up in an area where you just didn't see many, then even two or three deer hunters per square mile might seem like too many. You know, if you grew up in Pennsylvania with 14, well, two or three feels like you have everything to yourself. So I think we have to recognize that, sure, we we don't want to be crowded, but we need all the hunters that we can get. You know, only five percent of the US population buys a hunting license and, and we don't get to do anything because five percent of us want to do it. So more hunters that we have now is better. I agree we don't need a hundred percent of the US to hunt, but you know, it would it would help us if, if more than five percent hunted. So I think for right now anyways, everything we can do to recruit more hunters is, is a very important thing for our future.
0: Yeah. And I'll I'll just re-emphasize the point I made which was not only is it a good thing to do for the future of hunting it is fun it is fun I mean helping new hunters teaching new hunters mentoring new hunters being out there to see I mean I know you've seen it Kip I don't I'm preaching to the choir here but I mean there's almost nothing more rewarding than being out there when someone experiences a hunting success for the first time I mean, these have been the absolute coolest thing. Seeing people learn to hunt, seeing them, you know, walk up to the first deer they've ever taken a shot at and they have this meat and they have this experience. And I mean, I've had people tell me it's life changing. It's not, it's no small thing. I mean, these are really impactful changes and in, in ways of helping folks. And I mean, I, I think it's, if you look at how hunting has positively influenced you, and I don't think anyone listening to this would not agree with the fact that hunting has so positively influenced each and every one of us. Um, I mean, the good you can put into the world by helping other people experience that. I mean, that is a reward in itself. Um, so all other arguments aside, yeah. it's a great thing. I agree. And it's some of the most fun I have every year is, is mentoring hunters. And
2: one of the hunters I mentored last year, uh never shot a deer. It was a father, young father, we're sitting in uh, the blind the first night and I asked him like, why do you want to hunt? And, and I fully expected him to say, you know, I want to take some meat home. You know, that, that's because there's so many new hunters today. That's the driving force. And, uh, you know, I'm a father, you're a father, so we you can relate to this. He said, uh, I have three little boys at home and I want to be able to do this, to be able to teach them and to prove to them that I can, I can bring meat home for our family. Yeah. And I remember thinking, if I have to hunt with you every day, the rest of the year, you're going to take a deer home. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do everything possible to make sure. So, uh, in any way, you know, it's that, that was pretty powerful, you know, as a parent, you know, and as a father, I know what it's like, you know, how important it is for me to, you know, bring meat home to my family or, you know, when my kids are hunting with me. So, um, that, that really hit me hard. You know, he didn't grow up the way you did or I did, you know, with a, with a family figure, you know, teaching them that. So, he came to it later in life and good for him, you know, for, for wanting to do it now and taking the steps necessary. So I certainly was going to do everything in my power that, uh, that, that he learned, to, you know, learned to be a hunter and was able to
0: take some deer home. Yeah, that's pretty great. So Kip, given what you, you know, came to understand throughout the process of putting together this 2023 deer report. Or through through any of the other things we've discussed today, if you had to distill all the topics we talked about down to two related actions that you would like our audience to take after having heard this conversation, if there's two things that you would like to encourage our listeners to do over the you know next year that would help lead us towards a better future for deer and deer hunting. What would those two things be you'd like us to do?
2: One would be take somebody new hunting this year. Uh, I think it's Hunter's responsibility now to, to mentor, you know, the next group. So take somebody hunting and uh, shoot a doe this fall. <laughs> Both of those are incredibly important. And, uh, you know, if we had more hunters doing those, uh, if when you and I talk next year, uh, we'll be in better shape.
0: Man, that's an easy ask, Kip, because both of those things are a lot of fun. Like we already talked about how fun it is to mentor, <laughs> but then also like, every year, Kip, I'm always reminded, like when I go in the field on a doe mission, like specifically to go out to hunt does, every day I do it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. Like I almost like those hunts more because you're going out there, it's a target-rich environment. You just it just feels like every moment is a little bit more charged. Because it just feels like, okay, yeah, it's going to happen. You better be ready. Uh, And then it doesn't always happen. But, uh, man, I love hunting for does. Like, that's a blast.
2: I'm with you on that one. So uh, we'll see if we can encourage some
0: folks uh, to do that. All right. Well, uh, Kip, one last question. Where can folks go to get their own copy of the 2023 deer report and read. I mean, there's so much more on there that we didn't get to cover. So I'd highly encourage folks to download it and give it a read. So where can they find that? And then also, can you give folks just a quick, quick rundown of how they can become a member of the National Deer Association and and what all is in, uh, included with that?
2: Sure, they can go to our website, which is deerassociation.com. Um, on there, they can click on the deer reports and it's a free download. Every one of these um, are there, and uh, they can grab every single year if they'd like and see how their state compares to the neighboring states and and others in their region or or different regions. So can do that all for free. And then as far as becoming a member, uh, they can also do that right at the website, Gives them, you know, regular information like we're talking about here relative to, you know, to deer and habitat management and, and hunter recruitment, um, gives them opportunities to get engaged locally relative to issues, you know, impacting their deer hunting and, uh, keeps them up to date and all the latest science, uh, deer wise. So, uh, they can, they can take care
0: of all of that right on the website. Terrific. Well, uh, I appreciate it, as always, Kip. Thanks for, for walking through all this with me and, and answering all my questions and, and I just... I want to reiterate we talked at the front end about how you know long we've been doing this and how I'm starting to realize that and you've been at it much longer than I have and I I just want to publicly say thank you for what you've done in your time in this role with the QDMA now the NDA and uh, you've been such a great champion and voice for deer and deer hunters for a very long time now and um, I'm sure you know this but I'm not sure if you take the time to sit down and appreciate it or, or or revel in it, that being this this tremendous positive impact you've had on our pursuit and our resources and our lifestyle. So on behalf of all my listeners over all these years, thank you for that.
2: Well, I certainly appreciate the kind words, Mark. Uh, I appreciate that a lot. And uh, I'll, I'll throw it right back at you. You have a uh... You have a big voice and you have always done a great job and been a great champion for, for hunters and public lands and, uh, and, and deer in
0: particular. So, uh,
2: I appreciate the opportunity to be on here and be able to share some of our data. So, uh, um, keep up the good work.
0: All right. Right back at you, Kip. Uh, looking forward to doing our 2024 edition here before we know it. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in today. As Kip mentioned, please go on over, download the 2023 whitetail report, get the full scoop on everything we talked about. If you're not a member of the National Deer Association, it's cheap. It's gets you access to a ton of great resources and gets you plugged into a really, um, what I think is a special community of whitetail hunters and managers and conservationists. So check it out, going over to deerassociation.com. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. Hope to see a lot of you April 22nd at the Working for Wildlife Tour. And until then, stay tuned